The problem here is that Trump and Biden in particular, and, and others in our political system, talked about ending the endless wars when they don't recognize that Afghanistan and really all of Central Asia is like a big pile of pickup sticks. And they say, hey, we're going to take that American stick out of Afghanistan and nothing else will happen anywhere else. Completely wrong. That's John Bolton. He was Donald Trump's national security advisor and George W. Bush's ambassador to the United Nations. While he was on the inside, the famously hawkish conservative resisted Trump's efforts to negotiate with the Taliban. He left the White House on acrimonious terms a week after the then-president tried unsuccessfully, just before the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in 2019, to organize a summit with Taliban leaders at Camp David. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On, where every week we go deeper with the author of an important op-ed. After the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in the late 1970s, Pakistan's intelligence agency, the ISI, helped supply the Mujahideen resistance fighters. For years, the U.S. supported the ISI with money and weaponry. But Washington lost interest in Afghanistan after the Russians pulled out in 1989. A few years later, the Taliban took control of the country, and the rest is history. The U.S. got pulled deeper than ever into the region after September 11th. Islamabad and Washington have long had an alliance, but Pakistan's military and intelligence services have remained uncomfortably tight with the Taliban. Four presidents have grudgingly put up with this duplicity because Pakistan's ports and airfields provided supply lines for America's military presence next door, and also because Pakistan has a large nuclear arsenal. Bolton makes the case that the time has finally come to take a much harder line on Pakistan. Here's our conversation. On September the 12th, we give the Taliban a very clear ultimatum. You give us bin Laden and the other top al-Qaeda leaders, you can stay in power. If you don't, we're going to take you out and al-Qaeda as well. Having logistical support and cooperation with Pakistan was very important. But once again, we found ISI and other parts of the Pakistani military giving Taliban and al-Qaeda sanctuary across the border from Afghanistan in their own country, up to and including Osama bin Laden. When the famous mission took place during the Obama administration, he was living near the Pakistani capital, Islamabad. Now, Pakistan is a deeply schizophrenic country. A friend of mine once said it's the only country he knows that consists of arsonists and firefighters simultaneously. And the only thing I'd add to that is sometimes they're the very same people on any given point during the day. So we've had, uh, you, you know, in Facebook terms, it's a complicated relationship between Pakistan and the United States. We know what they're doing in supplying Taliban, some of these other terrorist groups. We know it comes from ISI. And we have seen and, and greatly worried about the growth of, of radical Islamists' thinking throughout the military. But at the same time, we have needed Pakistan's cooperation logistically in the Cold War, in our 20-year-long effort inside Afghanistan. And, you know, I think Americans should understand we've got elected officials in Pakistan. We deal with them. We act like they're running the country. They're not running the country. 
And there's a famous quote, some attributed to Voltaire. I, I tried to attribute it to Voltaire, but the Washington Post editors said, no, we can't verify that. But somebody once said, most states have an army, but the Prussian army has a state. And uh, it's a very insightful comment from the 18th century, and it applies to Pakistan. So dealing with the military now becomes uh, incredibly important, given the Taliban has taken over next door in Afghanistan. Public estimates give Pakistan maybe up to 150 nuclear warheads. So there's immediate danger, no matter what government is in control of Pakistan, of a nuclear confrontation with India. We come close many times. I've been involved in a few of those myself. Uh, But there's also the danger that the wrong kind of government in Pakistan could give one or more of those nuclear weapons to terrorists who could take them anywhere in the world. You don't need a bomber to, uh, to detonate a weapon. You can put it in a tramp steamer and sail it into a harbor and detonate it there. You can bring it across the Mexican border. There are, there are a lot of ways you can do this. And the risk of Pakistan becoming more radicalized and perhaps even taken over by people who think like Afghan Taliban is now dramatically increased. To what extent do you think Pakistan is still supporting the Taliban? Well, I don't think there's any question that they've supported them in all kinds of ways, financially, uh, with weapons, with strategic and tactical advice. And I think this is part of the two-faced approach is that ISI uh, is working hand in glove with Taliban leadership. Uh, At the same time, many elements of the military are just uh, smiling and saying they're not doing it at all. But this is a a long-standing pattern with Pakistan. It goes back a long time. And I, I just speak as someone who for many, many years, because of my concern about their nuclear capability, gritted my teeth and said, look, we've got to work with them and uh, try to persuade them to change. And I just think that long effort uh, has failed. And I think we need to acknowledge that. You mentioned in, in the piece, Prime Minister Imran Khan, like many prior elected leaders, is essentially just another pretty face. What can or should Khan be doing to try to get control of ISI? Is that really not on the table I mean, when you were national security advisor, you mentioned it's schizophrenic and there's all these different power bases. Obviously, you have to deal with the elected leader of the country, but did you also try to deal directly with ISI? What, how should we be playing this? How should Khan be playing it? Well, I, th- I think we've got to make it clear to the civilian leaders who I think are much less likely to be fascinated by radical Islam that Pakistan will pay a very dear price. Much aid has already been reduced. We need to possibly cut it off entirely, impose economic sanctions, a whole range of things if they don't cut off aid to the Taliban. And I think, look, we've equivocated for a long time. I I don't like having to do this because I do think it's risky. But if we don't do something like this, we'll just keep doing what we've done the past 20 years, which has manifestly failed. We'll be right back after a short break. You outline a couple of things that are, are very tangible and, as you say, risky, potentially. Absent clear evidence, Pakistan has terminated assistance to the Taliban. The U.S. should eliminate our own aid to Islamabad, strike Pakistan from the list of major non-NATO allies, impose anti-terror sanctions, and more. 
And then you say our tilt toward India should accelerate. Obviously, there's risk about the internal extremists. Do you worry these recommendations could, if we did it further, entrench Chinese interests in Pakistan and cement sort of Pakistan's reorientation away from us toward China? Well, this has been another part of, uh, maybe we should call it a three-phase strategy on Pakistan's part, because they have, uh, their nuclear and ballistic missile program owes its existence essentially to China. Why is that? Because the Soviets were helping the Indians with their nuclear weapons program. So the conflict between Russia and China, which developed through the 60s and got worse as time went on, which we missed a lot of in Washington. But that played itself out in Asia with China backing Pakistan, Russia backing India. It's part of the reason even today the U.S. has trouble getting close to India because it buys so much of its military hardware still from the Russians. Uh, the Chinese have put a lot of effort over the years to gain influence in Pakistan. They, uh, their Belt and Road Initiative has made Pakistan a pretty significant player. They want port facilities in Pakistan, and they're building beautiful roads that will go up through Pakistan into China. And pipelines are contemplated. Why is that important? Because all that oil that comes from the Middle East can be offloaded in Pakistan, piped through to China over the mainland, doesn't have to go through the Straits of Malacca, the South China Sea, near Taiwan or anything where the American Navy is. So yes, there is a risk there. But again, on the other hand, our influence, uh, I don't think matches China's influence today. Uh, I think it's hard to see how we could have changed that. And sometimes there's uh, utility in a dramatic change to wake people up. And that, that may be helpful as well. On the India point, you mentioned they were still getting stuff from Russia. You know, obviously, if our tilt toward India is accelerating, we sort of want the Indians to be bought into that. Do you see Narendra Modi as a reliable partner? He's obviously shown some authoritarian tendencies. Well, it's a geostrategic play. Uh, look, they've, they've also purchased S-300, S-400, and we now hear S-500 anti-aircraft systems from Russia, which should have already gotten them sanctioned, as Turkey was sanctioned, as China was sanctioned. So this is very complicated. But ultimately, the major problem uh, in Asia and really globally in this century is China. And we have seen in the past few years the beginnings of knitting together a group of countries that are very concerned, Japan, Australia, India, and the United States forming what we call the Quad now in the Pacific. It's not a NATO alliance. It's nowhere close to it. But people are looking at their strategic interest and, and worried about the Chinese behavior. So we're in a situation where we have multiple adversaries and even the adversaries are adversaries of each other, which doesn't necessarily make them our friend. So a lot of, a lot of uh, old sayings aren't really working at this point. And to me, what it comes down to is a fundamental concern about the security of the Pakistani nuclear arsenal. I'm not worried about the Indians. I'm worried about a nuclear confrontation between India and Pakistan, but I'm not worried about India's nukes finding their way into terrorist hands. You mentioned a few minutes ago, and, and I was struck by it in your piece, you attribute it to public sources, but you say that Pakistan could have perhaps more than 150 nuclear weapons, which I think is chilling for a lot of people. How can we counter this Pakistani nuclear program that has obviously gotten much larger than I think most Americans understand? We have tried for 20 years to get more hands-on, to know more about the the nuclear arsenals in Pakistan to know what the alarm systems were. I went with 
Secretary Colin Powell right after the 9-11 attack. Uh, we went to Pakistan, India, and then on to China. And uh, my job on his delegation was to talk to the Pakistanis about closer relationships with the safeguards, the nuclear controls. And uh, I had very pleasant meetings and I got a lot of smiles and that's about all that we came out with. Now, others have been a little bit more successful over the intervening 20 years, but it's not enough. So I think we've got to absolutely focus on knowing everything we can about the, not just the, the warheads, but the delivery systems as well. Uh, and whether we get a radical regime in power in Pakistan or, or the current regime or one like it, uh, if we see those weapons start to move, we've got to make sure they don't go very far. That's controversial, but uh, and it's, it's obviously potentially quite dangerous. More dangerous is seeing those warheads detonated in a major city somewhere. You mentioned the firefighter arsonist dichotomy, which I think is very memorable and apt. Could taking a hard line boost the extremists? I mean, how do you how do you empower the firefighters over the arsonists? I think there's unquestionably a risk, but the power of the extremists, the influence, has grown steadily year by year. Uh, and with Taliban now back in control of Afghanistan, I just think the risk has become acute. So for the firefighters, it's basically saying it's now or never. You've got to assert yourself. And, and really, if you want uh, civilian control of the government, if you don't get it now, you're, you're not even going to have the pretense very much longer. You tweeted the other day on withdrawal from Afghanistan, Trump and Biden are like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, where Biden bears responsibility for bungling the implementation. You said, I have no confidence Trump would have executed it any more competently. It's been a catastrophe that's only going to get worse. You obviously were in the administration for the whole near miss at Camp David, where they were engaging with the Taliban. Obviously, you believe in, and I think the last week has shown, the catastrophic danger of, of pulling out. Who do you think bears responsibility for everything that's gone wrong? Obviously, it's multiple administrations. At least the last three administrations have simply failed to explain to the American people that being in uh, Afghanistan militarily, not constantly at war, this is not the D-Day invasion every day. We haven't had, thank God, an American fatality in the last year and a half. But the presence, the capability, the backbone we've provided to the Afghans has kept the situation relatively stable and has kept ISIS and al-Qaeda from establishing effective sanctuaries from which to plan attacks on us. That, that's the objective. Better to fight them there, better to confront them there than in our own country. I think the American people would understand that. And while everybody says, oh, they're tired of the, of the endless wars and so on, the poll taken the weekend as the uh, Afghan government was, uh, was collapsing, 49% favored withdrawal. That was down from 69 in this morning consult poll. But then ask the question, well, if we withdraw and Taliban takes over, what, what, what would your opinion be of that? And at that point, support for withdrawal goes to 38% and opposition goes to 45%. Then the question is asked, well, what if, what if al-Qaeda comes back into Afghanistan? Support for opposition drops to 35, opposition withdrawal goes to 48. Okay, look, it's only one poll, but it makes sense. If you say to people, hey, here's a freebie, you want to get out of Afghanistan? They say, yeah, sure, why not? You look at the television, it looks like a mess. You say, I don't want to deal with it. Then you say, and by the way, the cost of what you're going to do is Taliban coming back, al-Qaeda coming back. People are very, very practical. They say, well, that's not what I had in mind. So let's not mislearn the lesson we're seeing here in, in, in public uh, opinion terms. 
I'm interested in your perspective on what do we do now? Is it right to engage with the Taliban to protect our interests? How do we fix this mess or contain the mess? Well, I think our only objective at this point is to get as many Americans and Afghans who worked with us and other coalition forces out. I would not recognize Taliban. I wouldn't give them aid. I wouldn't give them air to breathe. I think our objective is going to have to be to see if we can't find some Afghans who don't like this any more than we do. But our options there are limited. The the problem here is that Trump and Biden in particular, and and others in our political system, talked about ending the endless wars when they don't recognize that Afghanistan and really all of Central Asia is like a big pile of pickup sticks. And they say, hey, we're going to take that American stick out of Afghanistan and nothing else will happen anywhere else. Completely wrong. And we're seeing the consequences of it now. And and I think there are things that are going to happen that we can't even foresee at the moment. They're not going to be good. How worried are you about ISIS-K? Well, I'm very worried about it. I'm worried about it right now as long as there are Americans at the airport uh, because it's only got one runway that can take jumbo jets. And if that runway is closed, if a plane is brought down with a man pad or some other uh, weapon and the landing strip is dysfunctional for a number of days, everybody is vulnerable there. You know, people say at the airport, uh, congestion is down. Well, yes, that's because we're cooperating with the Taliban. No, because the Taliban are saying, people, you go back to Kabul. So if people are afraid to get on the road to the airport, of course, there's going to be less congestion. Do you think heads should roll in the administration? You've been national security advisor. You know, Jake Sullivan has been in the briefing room every day. Obviously, a lot of this was sort of foreseeable once you pull the stick out, to use your analogy. But should people lose their jobs for what's happened the last 10 days? Well, I I can't speak to what their internal dynamic would be. I will just say when I was national security advisor, I used to say I was the advisor, not the national security decision maker. I've known Biden for a long time, usually in an adversarial relationship. This is his decision. There's little doubt. I think just watching, this is his decision. He's going to have to bear the consequences, and he should. It's a disaster. The government of Pakistan is pushing back on Ambassador Bolton's op-ed. Prime Minister Imran Khan's national security advisor, Moeed Yusuf, called my colleague Josh Rogan to make the case that Pakistan and the United States have a shared interest in fixing their relationship to improve stability in the region. The Pakistanis say they helped bring the Taliban to the negotiating table at Washington's request then got cut out of negotiations last winter, and now they feel they're being scapegoated for the bad outcome. Yusuf added that the Taliban doesn't really need Pakistan nearly as much anymore now that they control the whole of Afghanistan. Meanwhile, Ryan Crocker, the former U.S. ambassador to both Afghanistan and Pakistan, is warning that the U.S. would be repeating the mistakes of the 1990s by getting tough right now with Pakistan. But he and Bolton agree that the prospect of violent destabilization in a country with about 210 million people and nuclear weapons is not a pretty one. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. For this episode, our sound engineer is Dara Hirsch. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. 
You can find the link in our show notes to Ambassador Bolton's op-ed, as well as Josh Rogan's write-up of his interview with Pakistan's National Security Advisor. If you have a moment, please give us a rating and review. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another episode of Please Go On, because there's always more to say. <laughs>